This is the Value Investor Podcast with Tracy Reinick. All things value, all the time. Welcome back, value investors. There's been a lot of Berkshire Hathaway news to start 2021. I guess we were already a couple months into 2021 now, but the news is starting to trickle out of Berkshire and they have now released their 2020 annual letter. And we've also gotten the 13F update on Berkshire's portfolio moves for the fourth quarter, remember, because it's always delayed a certain amount of time after the quarter ends is when everybody has to put out the 13 F's, all the big hedge fund and money managers have to put it out, including Berkshire. So we've got all of that information all at the same time. And then we're going to get some more when um, Warren and Charlie Munger do the annual meeting which normally takes place in Omaha, but this year they announced it's going to be moving to Los Angeles. It's going to be all virtual again, just like last year's. But uh, Buffett and Munger will be on the stage together. They were not last year because of COVID and everything going on. Um, And the meeting is on May 1st, so uh, we'll be able to watch it live. I will be watching it live again this year. It was like three and a half hours last year. They didn't take any breaks. Becky Quick was the moderator and she was taking in questions and then feeding them to Warren. And so she's going to be doing that again this time. So that's going to be exciting. You will learn a lot from that meeting. But in the meantime, we have to make do with the annual letter and the 13F. So as we know, Berkshire and Warren Buffett's uh, combined, we'll just call them as one entity here are sitting on a lot of cash in the Berkshire portfolio, right? So there was a filing a couple of months ago from Berkshire that they had made some kind of big purchase. And so they have to file this filing with the SEC, uh, which basically indicates they've made this big purchase, but they have this agreement with the SEC that if it's like a big enough purchase where they normally would have to disclose it, which usually means it's like over a 5% position in a company or thereabouts, then they do not have to disclose it because everybody is, you know, modeling off of Berkshire's portfolio throughout the years. And it doesn't give them enough time to accumulate shares if they take a big position in something and then they have to reveal it within 48 hours (laughs) that they took it. So they have this agreement that they don't have to reveal it until the next 13F. So, but they still have to do this filing. So we all knew that they had made some kind of big purchase. So this is exciting, right? Because they're sitting on all this cash. What will it be? It was in the fourth quarter. Um, that's all we knew. But there could be a lot of options there, right? And because they got billions sitting there. So what would you buy if you had billions sitting there and you were looking around, right? So there, there were a lot of options. So many were thinking maybe it was going to be some big, cool tech company or some other kind of game changer stock for the portfolio. Now, remember, they do own Apple. It's their largest position. 
Um, that wasn't so much a game changer when he bought it in 2016, because Apple was kind of out of favor in 2016. It was trading with a single digit PE at the time. So people were like, eh, Apple is kind of boring. Yeah, we're not surprised he bought it in 2016. Um, a couple years ago, they also bought a billion dollars worth of Amazon. That was a little more shocking because people immediately were like, how is that a value with the the very high PE it was sporting at the time and still sports today, actually. Um, but uh, Warren kind of brushed it off as, you know, yes, it was one of the lieutenants who bought it. And of course, there's some value there. And they'll explain it to us at some point, but we've never really got an explanation. <laughs> and now pretty much the street has, has forgotten that they own Amazon because it is a very small position in the portfolio and they have not added to it since that time. So maybe, you know, some of us were thinking maybe it's some kind of bigger position. Maybe they bought more of Amazon. I don't know. I was thinking maybe they're going to buy some Facebook after those shares have taken a tumble and um, are down more here in 2021. But uh, still looking a little bit more interesting on the valuation front for Facebook. But alas, it was none of those things. And instead, it turned out to be Verizon, ticker VZ. Yes, it's a telecom. So Verizon, I know I don't sound too enthused, right? Because I wasn't. When I heard the news, I was like, Verizon? No, Verizon. <laughs> ticker VZ. They have a forward PE of 10.9, so there's your cheapness, right? They they do pay that dividend. It's yielding 4.6%. Who doesn't like getting dividends? We all do. And if you can get a real juicy one, like 4.6%, it's doing half the work for you as long as the stock goes somewhere. As long as you see some appreciation in the stock, you're going to hit your targets of uh, whatever that target is of 7% a year, 8% a year, 10% a year, a lot easier if you if you have that dividend and that's compounding every year as well. Um, earnings growth, though, in 2021 of just 3.3%, 2022, 2.4%, sales growth, 3.8% in 2021, 1.5% in 2022. So, Pretty slow grower, as you might expect for this kind of company. That's why you get the dividend, because they're rewarding you for the slow growth. Um, so not super exciting there, but yes, the shares are cheap. So as you know, value investors tend to buy the boring, out-of-favor stocks, right? So Verizon shares are down 4.1% in the last year. So during the uh, coronavirus pandemic, they haven't recovered as much as what everything else has been doing. Over the last two years, down 3.3%. And just for comparison, the S&P 500 during those two years is up 38%. That's huge, huge underperformance. I mean, you basically, you, you're, you're not doing good. <laughs> it's not good. It's not in the red, but it's not good. So that nice dividend that you thought you were getting too, that you are getting, um, isn't really helping you much if you're that far below the S&P 500, the basic index. So as we know, this is one of the reasons that Berkshire Hathaway is most likely looking around at the stock and ended up buying a chunk of it. So Verizon goes back all the way to 1983. Obviously, they are old economy. Berkshire bought 
$8.6 billion position, which is about 3.2% of the portfolio. Turns out to be the sixth largest position now in his portfolio. Um, another big new addition that he made after that one, uh, but he wouldn't have had to disclose this one, was Chevron. And that's big oil at $4.1 billion he spent, or 1.5% of the portfolio. And that's the ninth largest. Now, both of these are like big mega caps. Um, I think I wrote down what Chevron's market cap is. It's almost $200 billion, I think, now. So, uh, you know, that's also, as I've always said, restricting Berkshire Hathaway. They have so much cash. They really can only deploy it into some of these big mega caps, um, although they have they have bought some small stuff, but it's not really going to move the needle much if you're only buying five hundred million dollars worth of a company and you have, you know, 30 or 40 billion sitting there. You're not going to spend it fast enough. So he needs these big these big holdings to do so. So he's he spent eight point six billion on the Verizon 4.1 billion on Chevron. So that's a nice chunk of change that suddenly is being used. Now Chevron also pays that dividend. So I'm sure they were looking around at that. It's about 5% on Chevron, which is extremely high. And they've said that it's safe for now. But these shares, one year, they're now up 8.6%, but that's because the rally here in 2021. When Berkshire bought in the fourth quarter, the shares were still down roughly 30%, somewhere in there. We don't know exactly where he bought. But if he bought near the lows in the fourth quarter, they were down 30% from the beginning of the year there. Over the last two years, they're still down 14%. Then I took a look at the five-year returns, they're up. 19.4%, but the S&P 500, if you had just bought the index, was up 92%. You almost doubled your money in five years, but you're, you're not with Chevron. And again, yes, you're getting the dividend, which was lower during some of that five-year period, but the dividend is not going to make up for that kind of underperformance. Um, the energy sector, as you know, has been awful for maybe even almost 20 years now. But from 2006 to 2020, the energy ETX, the XLE, was the worst performing of the sector ETFs. So if you're looking around for value, well, obviously, one place to look is among the worst performing, right? Especially over multiple decades of worst performing. But if you are familiar with Berkshire and what they've owned in the past in terms of stocks and also what's in their actual portfolio, they have quite a bit of energy exposure already. And uh, Buffett has bought energy stocks in the past. In fact, last year, if you recall, in 2020, they still owned Occidental Petroleum, ticker OXY. And then they sold it right after the coronavirus crash. They got out completely. So, yeah, they didn't wait that long. They only waited a quarter or two before redeploying back into oil. And this time they went into big oil, even though Occidental is a large cap. 
it's not considered big oil because it does not have refining capabilities. So Chevron, Exxon, both are big oil. They have the complete package upstream and downstream, and that includes refining. So, so yeah, they're not uh, strangers. Berkshire has liked energy and they own some in uh, the companies among their holdings as well. So I, I wasn't really surprised that he got in and he got in basically close to the bottom. Well, for now, the bottom for now. I said this several times over, over the years with energy, like how much lower can it go? The worst is over, but it still continues to go lower. But for those who are value uh, investors looking around, and if you have a strong stomach and if you've been in and out of the energy companies, then you know that it was pretty dirt cheap when the panic was in last year. And then even when the second sell-off happened after the summer rally, we had the second sell-off into the fall. That was another buying opportunity. It didn't quite get to the coronavirus lows. And then it bounced off that and has been moving much higher on the reopening trade. So these are a couple of the big names that Buffett bought in the fourth quarter, and that's and he had to get uh, you know the regulatory hold to disclose to us. But neither one super exciting, and both of them are clearly old economy stocks, which for some of us maybe was a disappointment, thinking we might get something a little bit different here. He also made a couple moves in the financials, which we've talked about on this podcast several times. I complained like a year or two ago, maybe it was two years ago, that he owned too much of the financials. It was over 50% of the portfolio at one point. And so maybe he's listening. I don't know, but they've they really cut it back now. So in the fourth quarter, they sold more of Wells Fargo, ticker WFC. They... Um, sold out completely. Well, the Wells Fargo went down to just 0.6% of the portfolio now. It used to be like 3 or 4%. And I'm assuming, but we'll see in a couple months, but I'm assuming that they're sold completely out of it as of this first quarter. That's been his MO. He's been slowly uh, selling off some of these bank stacks and then he's completely out. So he's going to be completely out of Wells Fargo by this year, 2021. He completely sold out of JP Morgan, even though he only entered into it just a couple of years ago. So that was a quick trade. He just deciding to go in a different direction. Also completely sold out of PNC, which he bought at the same time as JP Morgan or around the same time. So that was also a newer holding and that's a big regional bank. Um, I like PNC a lot. So um, it's too bad that he ended up getting out of that one. He also sold M&T Bank in Buffalo. That's a smaller regional bank, ticker MTB. And he held that one for a long time. Like that was a couple decade holding, I believe. So clearly trying to consolidate some of these financials from the banking side. He also still owns Visa and MasterCard and StoneCo all on the financial side. So he still has quite a bit of financials, but the banks he's been selling out of. So he still does, however, own the Bank of America position. BAC is the ticker there. It's still 11.4% of the portfolio, the second largest holding after Apple. 
And that's a uh, almost 12% position in the company. So Berkshire is a 12% shareholder about in Bank of America. So consolidating all his banks into the one, which is what I always said, there's no reason to own three or four or all four of the big international banks, which is Bank of America, Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, and Citigroup. There's no reason to own even two of them. Now, however, I do like the idea of owning some of the, you know, at least one of the regionals and then moving down to the community banks. But, and those can range in various sizes. Some of the community banks can be, um, you know, up to a billion dollars market cap. Some of the community banks can be a hundred million dollars market cap. Um, that's pretty small. That the little community bank is just doing, you know, mortgages, car loans. Um, some business loans, and then your deposits and that kind of stuff. But the bigger regional banks will be loaning, um, you know, out on maybe some bigger projects like uh, local real estate, and uh, they may have a little more like insurance side, financial uh, offerings and things like that than maybe some of the smallest little ones. Um, so I like all of them here in 2021 because those 10-year uh, treasury is on the move higher. And every time it goes up, the banks make more money. Their earnings actually will go up. And the big guys, the big international ones, have a lot of different other businesses like trading and commodities trading, all this other stuff. So keep that in mind. It's not going to go completely right to the bottom line with the huge, huge banks like Bank of America, but it will with the smaller regionals. Now there's like dozens of them, hundreds of them you can look at. So you kind of have to know what's in your area, what you think is doing good, listening on the conference calls if they have them, if you can, and um, try to do your own due diligence. Now, I would say like use the Zach's rank. But, and that can be a, a great tool to try to uh, narrow the list down. Actually, I should do a whole podcast on that, looking for banks using the Zacks rank. Because right now, if you look at the Zacks number one ranks, just those, that's our biggest, you know, that's the group, little over 200 stocks, and those are the strong buys. Well, there's there's dozens of banks on that list right now. I, I want to say it's the most I've ever seen, like in years. Um, and that's because the earnings estimates are all being raised on all of those banks after this last earnings season. And as the 10-year is rising, the bank analysts are going in and going, yeah, the earnings are going to be higher. So they're raising all of them. So you're looking at the list of dozens of them, then that doesn't really help you. How do you narrow that down? So a lot of it is going to be on your regional preference, like where you are, what is the economy like in your region or or maybe you should just be looking at the regional economies that are the strongest. And we kind of know what some of those are, right? Like on the reopen, we know certain parts of the country are probably going to explode higher than others. Um, although the entire country should be exploding higher, but there are certain parts of the country that may see a little bit better um, economic results. And so places with hot housing markets, for instance, uh, there's going to be a lot of mortgages 
being applied for in those areas, construction loans, that kind of thing. So the banks are all going to be involved in in that, and that can tell you the momentum in the local economy. So look around for that. Um, but now that I'm thinking about it, I really should do a whole podcast on that. So I'm going to divert off of the banks for right now, and we're going to talk about that later because that's an interesting place right now to invest. But Berkshire is going the opposite way. They did just get rid of all that and they still have the bank exposure, but only really um, on the bigger level. And again, because they're so big, they're not going to go in and buy the community bank with 40 branches. Only you and I can do that. They cannot do that. (laughs) And they're not going to buy the bank outright. So yeah, they're kind of limited to the biggest regional banks and the big four And that shows up in their owning of Bank of America. But I know some of you guys are thinking, why is he buying all these old economy stocks? Like, why isn't he moving on? Why didn't he buy a semiconductor? Even in the fourth quarter of last year, some of the semis, even on a PE level, were pretty attractive. And the business outlook is great. And the cash flows are good. Why not a semiconductor? Why buy the Chevron? Well, we kind of already talked about why. But remember, Buffett buys the business. He buys the cash flows. He said this in the annual letter again, just as a reminder, because everybody right now is obsessed with the chart and momentum and what the Reddit traders are doing and Wall Street bets. None of that has to do with the underlying business. That doesn't tell us what, how much cash Chevron is going to make and whether or not they can pay that dividend and invest in their business and grow the earnings and the sales. But thinking of Chevron, you know, Buffett is always bought for the long term. And a lot of you might probably thinking Chevron can't be a long term play, can it? Can they really own it 10 years, 20 years, maybe 10 years, right? But what if he only holds it for three to five years? Some of these banks he bought like three years ago and he just sold those. He has been known to only hold for a couple of years and get out. And in fact, he just sold um, Barrick Gold and he only owned that not even for a year. I think it was two quarters and he sold completely out of that position. Maybe realizing like, hey, I was wrong on the gold play and this is not the place to be going into 2021 and I'd rather deploy the money elsewhere. On the same note, I have also sold my gold miner because of the same reasoning, or at least that's my reasoning, is that I can deploy it somewhere else and the gold trade is not turning out so far what I thought it would be. So I too sold out, but I was not in Barrick. But Barrick is ticker G-O-L-D, just so you know, Um, but he completely sold out of that. So maybe Chevron is just a three to five year play and we're still going to need oil. We're still going to need gasoline. We're still going to need petrochemical products over the next three to five years. Even as we switch over to electric or hydrogen or other means for automobiles and transportation in general. But we're still going to need these companies, um, just maybe in a little bit different way. So we don't know. We're waiting for his annual meeting because I'm sure someone's going to ask him this. Why are you buying a big energy here? Um, So I await that question. Maybe one of you will send it to to Becky and she can ask him. Um, But I did take a look again at the annual letter and 
in there, he talks about the Berkshire Hathaway returns as he does like every year. And I thought this was interesting too, as a reminder to all of you who are value investors, is that you're not gonna beat the market every year, or even if you're a growth investor, <laughs> you're not going to. It's like nearly impossible. Even Buffett doesn't do it. And now that Berkshire Hathaway is so big, it's becoming more and more difficult for him to do so. So over the last three years, um, he managed to beat only one year. So 2018, Berkshire's return was 2.8%, but the S&P with dividends included was down 4.4%. So he did beat that year. 2019, it was up. he was up 11% and the S&P was up 31.5. So big underperformance there by 20%. 2020, Last year, when he sold all those airlines, member and took a loss, and then um, had some other issues, obviously, like selling the Barrick Gold. I think they probably took a loss on that one, although I'm not totally sure on that. But that wasn't, you know, completely out of that position. Selling the bank stocks, etc. Uh, 2020 up 2.4, and the S&P was up 18.4. So uh, Berkshire Hathaway, this is their total returns, obviously, um, you know, underperforming, but compounded, he always puts this down from 1963 to 2020. If you've been sticking around for a lot of years, it's still at 20% versus S&P 500 at 10.2. So almost double S&P 500, but a lot of that outperformance was when it was much smaller in his initial years. Um, including into the like mid 1970s when everything was dirt cheap and he was scooping up a lot of companies, you know, with single digit PEs and then into the 80s and even into the 90s. Um, so it's been a little tougher over the last, you know, 10 to 20 years for value investors in general and also Berkshire Hathaway. Now, I did pull out uh, one interesting quote out of the annual letter because I thought this was uh, telling about this year and it's some good advice for this year. So he said, investing illusions can continue for a surprisingly long time. And I would just tell people to keep that in mind when you're out there thinking like, why, why are people buying all these companies that have no earnings that keep going up for these outrageous, you know, valuations. Why why are people buying the SPACs that really have no business model like <laughs> sitting there? Um, any of these questions where you're like, what? This doesn't make any sense. Think of that quote, investing illusions can continue for a surprisingly long time and they can. So you have to keep your head about you. Now going on to Berkshire's uh, letter again, they have four crown jewels that he listed out this year, and it's worth repeating what those are. These are the the major components of Berkshire Hathaway's business. So the first one is insurance. He loves it. He loves all kinds of insurance, and they've made a ton of money off of insurance. Second one is BNSF, Burlington Northern Santa Fe is what it stands for. Those of us in Chicago know this because there's a BNS BNSF line here um, for the railroad here. And it is the largest railroad in the United States. And um, I'm gonna have more about that in a second. The third one is Apple, that's their third crown jewel. And the fourth one is Berkshire Hathaway Energy, like I was mentioning, BHE is how he shortens it, just the BHE division. 
But I want to take a look at the railroads. This is the other old economy area that he's been big in and he loves. So they acquired BNSF in 2010. And if you were watching Berkshire Hathaway and Buffett back then, so that was a little over 10 years ago, everyone thought he overpaid for BNSF um, because he did pay a premium for the railroad. And at the time, everyone's like, what? Like, why are you paying that much for this old economy railroad thing? That's kind of a dying business. But it wasn't dying, and it's not it's not going to be dying anytime soon because we still need this kind of transportation. So BNSF, founded in 1850, doesn't get much more old economy than that. He did say in 2020 that they saw a 7% decline in volume. That was due to the coronavirus. But the profit margin was up 2.9 percentage points. So the railroads actually, it, it, outside of BNSF, BNSF had a pretty good 2020, actually, as the rebound happened and um, shipping picked up. But, um, you know, then the shares have taken off, too. So the railroads have really consolidated into just these big winners. He talks about this in the letter. At one point, there were like, I don't know, hundreds of railroads across the country, just like the airlines. There were like dozens of airlines, dozens of automakers. They've all consolidated into like a, a set handful or so of the big winners. It costs a lot of money to lay railroad tracks, and you're pretty much not gonna not gonna do it now that they've all been laid. Like you're not gonna say, I'm gonna go start like this long distance over the mountains, you know, transportation line. There are some railroads being started for passengers, but not really for um, you know freight. And this railroads for freight is still the way to go. It's still among the easiest and cheapest ways to ship. So it's not going away. The country is still big, no matter how much more technology we get. And the technology is actually improving the productivity for the rails. And so that's showing up in a lot of their numbers. So right now we have BNSF, that's the largest owned by Berkshire Hathaway, but there's also Union Pacific, ticker UNP, Kansas City Southern, ticker KSU, and CSX, CSX. There's a few others too, but I'm not gonna go into those because these are like the big four here. And railroads seem kind of boring, right? Um, but they're really not <laughs> when you dig right down to it. They are all the economy, but transportation is so key, as I mentioned. So Kansas City Southern, for example, is the sixth best performing S&P 500 stock of the last 30 years, a railroad, the sixth best performing. They went IPO in November 1962. And so from 1990 to 2020, $10,000 invested in 1990 was $8.4 million. That's an annualized gain of 25.2% or 84,714% gain over 30 years. So that was better than Apple's performance during the same 30-year time period. Apple's 30-year performance, they went IPO in December of 1980, but from 1990, if you put $10,000 in, that was, you know, when Steve Jobs had left or he leaves in there in the 90s and then he comes back. The company was near bankruptcy when he came back in the late 1990s. So it was tough that first decade out for Apple. But 10,000 invested was still $4.2 million by 2020. 
but you had to ride out a lot of uncertainty in there and it ranks number 14 on the list. So Kansas City Southern at number six, Apple at number 14, still not too shabby, 42,259% gain over that amount of time period. But the old economy obviously is not loosening its grip, not quite yet, not these winners. So energy would have made the list of the top 30 if it wasn't for the last 20 years. If we were looking at only the first 10 years from 1990 to 2000, oh, that wouldn't have been bad. But the last 20 years for energy, it has been terrible. So I took a look at Chevron, 20 years since 2000, they're up 144%. Well, that doesn't sound too bad, right? But that's 20 years. That's versus 210% for the S&P 500. Or if you were in the NASDAQ, mostly dominated by technology, you'd be up 512% just by buying the NASDAQ index. So big underperformance there. So again, we go back to the question, why can't Buffett quit the old economy? Because it is still working. And if you can get it cheap enough, why wouldn't you buy? That's the whole mantra of the value investor to get it cheap enough. And energy has been in a terrible place for 20 years, but eventually is his bet. It's going to come out of it. He has 70 years of investing experience, much of it in the old economy. Let's be honest. He, he was not buying Microsoft in the 1990s. No. Um, so most of it, other than the Apple Apple buy and then the IBM buy, which didn't work, but you can call IBM kind of old economy. Um, none of those have really worked for him in a big way, like uh, the railroad worked. And now that is one of the crown jewels of the company. And it was only bought by Berkshire a little over 10 years ago. So you can see why he still loves the old economy and all of us value investors should still be looking at old economy plays um, because these are the winners. Um, I took a look at a couple of the other railroads. If you are interested in getting into a railroad, I've been in and out of them over the last 10 years. Um, I don't own any in my own personal portfolio now, and I don't have any in the value investor because I was kind of waiting for them to go cheaper last year during the coronavirus sell-off, but they never did. And now they're a little pricey for me, but Kansas City Southern um, has a PE of 23 times. Its sales are expected to be up 12% in 2021 and another 6% in 2022. Earnings expected to jump 29% and 17% in 2022. Over the last year, the shares are up 33%. That's beating the S&P 500, which is up 25%, but underperforming the NASDAQ up 47%. But eh, 33%, uh, it's not too shabby for a company that's been around a long time. Um, Union Pacific, that's the other one I really like. Union Pacific is the one out in California, and then they, they run their lines along the Mexico border, and they're the only ones with the distribution facilities along the Mexico border. I think they have five, at least five distribution like uh, centers there. And so a lot of the manufactured goods coming up from uh, Central America right there, especially Mexico, have to go through Union Pacific there. So that's why I like them a lot. Um, Kansas City Southern actually is the only railroad, U.S. railroad, that has railroad 
lines in Mexico. So that's also why I like Kansas City Southern too. But but combined, they have a lot of uh, influence and business in Mexico and along the border there with the trade. So UNP, this one has a PE of 22, sales expected to be up 7.6% in 2021 and another 5% in 2022. Earnings expected to be up 15% this year and 11% next year. And these shares up 30% versus again, the S&P 500 up 25 and the NASDAQ up 47. So um, I always keep these on my watch list. I listen in and see what they're doing on the earnings and it has been very solid. And with the economy reopening, everybody's still buying things. They should also do well here in 2021. So. The old economy stocks are still the building blocks. And many of these, as I mentioned, are the survivors. These are the companies that won. So Union Pacific beat out hundreds of other railroads, and then they ended up buying up the ones they wanted to to add to their own arsenal. Same with Kansas City Southern. And so now they are the winners. They are the ones that have survived for over 100 years to be there at the end. And so if you can get them cheap, then you're getting the earnings on sale. Same with Chevron, Chevron and Exxon. They are the winners of the oil. Um, And again, you may hate the oil part of things, but there's still um, need for it for now. And so maybe on a slightly shorter play than what like a railroad might be then you might want to keep energy in your uh, in your sites as well. So do I like the Verizon purchase, the telecom area? No, that's not for me. I wouldn't be in there um, even for that dividend, but some of the dividend investors, it, the dividend is, is usually stable with the telecoms. And if you're looking for that income, then that it might be one to buy. It is cheap. So you're not overpaying for those earnings. So in that way, that it does, um, it is a uh, value stock. So for that reason, I can see why Berkshire is buying it, but they're not going to outperform the S&P 500 by adding that one to their portfolio. But we'll find out more at the annual meeting why they bought that one. Um, I also do like the setup for the banks here, as I mentioned, and a lot of the banks, if you're looking for income, are paying dividends again, and some of those are in the 2 to 3 maybe even 4% range, but a lot of the banks have not rallied, so you might not be able to get the 4% anymore. But banks are uh, looking interesting here in 2021. They've had a horrible decade as well. They are ranked down there along with energy as worst performers since 2006, thanks to the financial crisis and then the last decade where they've really gone nowhere. But as Warren Buffett knows, because he's been around a long time, the sectors that go nowhere for a decade or two usually start going somewhere. Um, They usually bottom out and everybody hates them. And that's when you can find the value. So keep that in mind. And as always, we like to tune in to see what Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway are doing. Also, Charlie Munger, who's had some interesting comments recently as well. I should cover those on another podcast. Um, He will be at the annual meeting, and that'll be a good addition. He's 97 now. He's seen it all, too. And it's always good to get experience because experience does matter in investing. 
So let me recap a long list of tickers because we covered a lot on this episode. So there was Verizon, VZ is the ticker. Chevron, CVX is the ticker for that one. I mentioned Occidental, but Berkshire no longer owns it. OXY is that ticker. Wells Fargo, which he's probably already out of even as I record this. WFC, Bank of America is still his second largest holding. BAC is the ticker. He sold out of JP Morgan. JPM is the ticker. Apple remains his largest holding. It was as big as 47% of Berkshire's portfolio and has now he had to sell some to kind of keep it from overwhelming the whole stock part of the portfolio. And now it's down to 43 again, but Apple AAPL is the ticker. He sold completely out of Barrett Gold. That was a gold miner, ticker G-O-L-D. Buffett also historically hates gold. I'm assuming this was a buy by one of the lieutenants. It does have good cash flow and is paying a dividend, but they got out of that. Um, PNC is one of the other banks. He sold out of that one. PNC is the ticker, the big regional bank. Um, he also sold out of MNT, which is MTB, and that's in Buffalo, MTB. That's the bank. And then we had some of the rails, Kansas City Southern, KSU, Union Pacific, UNP, and I didn't go into details with CSX. That's on the East Coast, if you're interested in where they have their rail lines. CSX is the ticker there. So, wow, a lot going on right now for value investors, but there is value out there and you can find it, but you got to have a strong stomach and you got to kind of buck where everybody else is going. Buffett didn't buy a semiconductor and he didn't buy Facebook, which is my choice of what he should have been buying. But instead, he bought the energy, which has soared for him here in 2021. And he bought a telecom, which I did not see coming. But um, who knows what will happen next. But we're going to be covering it all here on the Value Investor Podcast. So be sure to get us somewhere. We are on Apple Podcasts. We are on Amazon Music. And we are on Spotify. And so get us somewhere because next week I'll be back with some more value stocks. This material is being provided for informational purposes only, and nothing herein constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. Do not act or rely upon the information and advice given in this podcast without seeking the services of competent and professional legal, tax, or accounting counsel. Publication and distribution of this podcast is not intended to create, and the information contained herein does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. No recommendation or advice is being given as to whether any investment or strategy is suitable for a particular investor. It should not be assumed that any investments in securities, companies, sectors, or markets identified and described were or will be profitable. All information is current as of the date herein and is subject to change without notice. Any views or opinions expressed may not reflect those of Zach's investment research as a whole.